If you could open your Bibles to Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, Um, and uh, we're going to look at the first 16 verses of that chapter. We, I'm beginning a new series today, and, and like the previous series, which was in a way a continuation of the one before that, well, this one in a way is a continuation of this last one. So, I mean, you know, I, I just, truth is, I haven't got much different to say. I just say the same thing every week and try to repackage it. And, and so, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, if you would um, uh, look at Hebrews 11, the title of this series is Imagining the Kingdom. Imagining the kingdom, and in this particular message I'm calling uh, Harnessing the Power of Sanctified Imagination. Harnessing the Power of Sanctified Imagination. And if you would read with me from Hebrews 11, I'll be reading in the New International Version, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For, before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country not a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read of those who went before us, the fathers of our faith, and and how faith impacted how they lived. How faith transformed their hopes into a living reality. 
and transcended their circumstances. Lord, may the gospel of Jesus do the same for us, and may these words help us to understand how. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagination is a powerful thing. I just finished uh, reading uh, yet one more historical fiction. This one is about or was about a Jewish lawyer who hired spies in the 1930s to uncover a Nazi plot to take over all the Hollywood studios in order to control the media. It's actually real things that happen, but they have to imagine, of course, because spies don't generally write everything down that they're doing for somebody to then write a book about later, kind of contrary to what they're trying to accomplish. But though the characters themselves are mostly fictional, you can get caught up in the excitement of the moment. You can feel their hopes and accomplishments, their fears and disappointments. Imagination can be quite powerful, but imagination doesn't only deal with the realm of fiction. Too often the assumption is that what is imagined is unreal. If that were true, we would have none of the technological advances that we have in the world today. Someone had to imagine the possibility of flying before planes could be invented. Someone had to imagine the possibility of a motorized vehicle before cars could become a reality. Most of what we know scientifically today began in the imagination of a scientist. Democracy was first imagined, and then it became a reality. AI, artificial intelligence, once something only of the imagination, is becoming a reality as we sit here today. So much that its creators are actually becoming rather concerned with what it could potentially be done, yet be used for evil to do. Secular historian and philosopher Yuval Noah Harari writing about how humans became the dominant creature on earth, attributes it to the ability to tell a story. To tell a story and to believe a story. To, with that story, imagine a way of being and then live toward that way of being. That that in and of itself is what separates humanity from everything else and made humans, homo sapiens, the dominant creature on the planet. I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but he is right that that is a significant aspect of what it means to be human. And it can be used for good or ill. The most widely sold story is the Bible. But Harari points out that the most successful story ever told is that of money. People will spend their lives accumulating stacks of paper or what is now merely a digital data. What value does it have? Well, it only has the value that we believe it has according to the story we've been told. And of course, the value that that story has to the value of that money probably depends on which country you live in. But they all tell the story, right? I've got what would be the equivalent of millions of dollars worth of Iraqi dinar in my drawer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's worth maybe 50 cents today, just more of a collectible value. Um, of course, I was given it after it was only worth pennies, but <laughs> it's just fun to hang on to. Money has no intrinsic value. I, 
I mean, if, if you're going to be shipwrecked on an island, a desert island, say, for the next 10 years, would you want a suitcase full of money or a suitcase full of food? Right? I'll go with the food, right? I mean, I, I definitely want the food because the money will be worthless to me. I'll be dead uh, without the food. How we live is entirely rooted in the stories we believe. How we imagine reality to be. That's what determines how we live. If we believe the story of money more than we believe the story of Christ's coming kingdom, the money story will have a greater impact on our lives. Of course, I'm not suggesting that you can imagine whatever you want and achieve it. There are limitations. No matter how much we might think otherwise, the men in this room couldn't break Tom Brady's records in football. I mean, I don't care. You, you won't. It's not possible. Even Austin. Not possible. I mean, for you to do it. Josiah, forget it. It's not possible. Um, there are real limitations. And, but, but the reality is that even lies that we believe will determine how we live. We may not achieve what we think we're going to achieve, but they will change how we live, and that will impact our lives. Imagination is used for much more than fabrications. It is the very substance of invention and transformation. Imagination is essential for a life of faith. God wants His people to harness the power of sanctified imagination. God wants us to harness the power of sanctified imagination. You might wonder why I don't use more biblical word like hope. Instead, I'm choosing to use imagination. Well, I will be using the word hope, and we'll be talking about hope to be sure. But I lead with imagination because often when we hear words like hope and faith, we just kind of gloss over and kind of get this religious thought process going in our head that we're talking about something distinct and separate from the real world in which we live. But imagination doesn't do that to us. And so I use that word because I think it captures the original meaning of hope in a lot of ways. Not all of it, but certainly a good chunk of it. To help us understand what God, how God wants us to be transformed by our hope. We'll look at how to harness the power of sanctified imagination under three headings this morning. Imagining what we do not see, living for what we imagine, and forging a new imagination. So, let's begin under that first heading, imagining what we uh, do not see. And let's look back at Hebrews 11. I'm going to read verse 1 and then jump to verse 8. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children... Because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. What do we hope for? Well, according to our text, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were longing for or hoping for, waiting for, the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. 
the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Sarah herself embraced the promise which resulted in descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Well, the New Testament makes clear that the city of God and the countless descendants are actually the same thing. The city isn't buildings, but people. The city isn't buildings, but people. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for, this future city, Christ's kingdom, will become a reality. It is the assurance that, though we do not see it, though it may feel like we labor in vain, it will surely happen. This is essential because we will never live for what we hope if we do not have confidence that it will matter. Faith is that confidence. Faith understands that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, that which came first, the unseen, created the material universe, or maybe better said, that which existed before anything existed was unseen. And it made what is seen, the material universe. And therefore, the logic of that verse is, that which is unseen is more real and determinative of reality. What you see, what you can put in a test tube, what you can test, isn't as real as the unseen. Because the unseen shapes the seen. Plato understood this, and he called the unseen forms, which are eternal and changeless. These unseen forms are ultimately in control of the material world, or changeable matter. Thomas Aquinas put it a little differently, Aquinas. He said, all corporeal or material things are governed by angels. All material things are governed by angels. See, he understood that unseen things have an impact on what is seen. On NOVA, PBS um, uh, program, uh, they, they talk about WIMP particles. That's W-I-M-P. Um, and no, I'm not talking about the men in this room again. Um, but weekly <laughs> stands for Weekly Interacting Massive Particles. WIMP. Weekly Interacting Massive Particles. Um, and, and, and they say this. In, in order to create the, the kind of gravity that draws large amounts of matter together, think planets and so forth, the particle would need to have mass, lots of it, lots of mass. But because it's invisible and eludes detection, note those words, invisible and eludes detection, it also must be weakly interacting. Okay, so according to scientists, to put it in other words, wimps could pass right through the earth without colliding with anything. Now, of course, they can't find these things, that's the whole point. They elude detection, but they somehow know they're there. By way of analogy, God is massive, eludes detection, and is weakly interacting. At least we see that in the cross. That is indeed His true power. Amen? Now, just because things, things are invisible and undetectable doesn't mean, at least according to science, that they don't exist. Hmm? What do we hope for? A city whose builder and maker is God. This city is called, in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem. But the description of the city there defies any attempt to literalize it. Its measurements are strange, at least. But 
Like one uh, other thing measured in Revelation, the, the New Jerusalem is a 144 million square stadia, and its walls are uh, 144 cubits thick, all of which corresponds to the 144,000 members of the perfectly described Israel in chapter 7, which turns out, when he turns around to look at it, to be an innumerable number of mongrels making up the people of God. This city is not a physical space ready for us to move into, but a building which is being built by God, which joins us together. I don't know if you've seen these, but there are, you can find pictures of this on the internet. China has actually built entire cities that are uninhabited. Like there's no people there. Office buildings, condominiums. I mean, they're expecting them to be filled with people at some point. But they've built cities that will be inhabited. But that's not what the New Jerusalem is. It's not like God's up there preparing this wonderful city. Hey, we get to move in, pack your bags, bring the U-Haul. No. We are that city. And we are being built together. Amen? Amen. What we are longing for is not the world's coolest space, but a love-filled, peace-filled relational community which lives in the peace and love which can only exist under our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? It is a kingdom in which there are no poor or needy, for no one considers their possessions their own but meets the needs of others. It is a kingdom which functions under the compact of the Sermon on the Mount, in which one gets uh, uh, slapped on one cheek. They, when they do, they offer the, another. When one loans money, they do so without expecting a return, which also means one has their debts forgiven. In which one, when disciples meet those who mourn loss, they bring them shalom or wholeness. Or when disciples meet the crushed in spirit because of poverty, they are willing to be persecuted on account of doing right by them. And when disciples meet the lowly, they're willing to get their hands dirty while helping them from a pure heart. And in which when disciples meet those with, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are merciful. This is the city that will one day come in fullness, but for which we hope now. But we must be able to imagine it, to truly hope for it, in order to truly wait for it, and therefore to live for it. We must be willing, able to imagine it in order to truly hope for it. In order to truly wait for it, we must, then that will enable us, if we're truly waiting for it, to therefore live for it. So, second heading, living for what we imagine. Uh, verse 4 of our text is where, where we're going to look at, but just a couple of things before we look at those verses. In the previous section, we answered the question, in what do we hope, or for what do we hope? Uh, now I want to ask, where, where does faith come in? Okay, we, we hope for this city, right? But how does faith then interact with our hope for that city? When faith is applied to what we hope for, it enables us to live in the future kingdom now. When faith is applied to what we hope for, it enables us to live in the future kingdom now. It changes how we live now. In Christ's resurrection, the once future new creation began. We talked about that at Easter. In Christ's resurrection, the once future new creation began. Put it another way, the kingdom of God has come already, but not fully yet. 
When we apply faith to our hope, we live according to the ways of the kingdom now, and our experience of the kingdom already increases. See, we, we often think of the already not yet as if it's a fixed sum. Like, okay, this much is already, and this much is not yet. But that's not how it works. We are to already live out the kingdom, and as we live it out, the already begins to grow, and the not yet begins to shrink because we're beginning to live into the future. It's not fixed. Faith allows us to begin living in the future kingdom. Faith in this hope of the already not yet kingdom changes how we live, increasing the already. We see this in the examples of Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. In verse 4, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. So, faith in this hope changed how he gave to the Lord. Faith in that hope changes how we give to God. By faith, Enoch was taken, this is verse 5, taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now be careful here. It does not say that faith pleases God. It does not say that faith pleases God. It says that without faith, one cannot please God. It would be a little like saying, without an army, you cannot win the war. But that does not mean that all you need to do is get an army to win the war. You might well have an army and lose the war. Plenty of people do. An army will be necessary, but so will good leadership, the right strategy, proper weather, and help from on high. Amen? Without faith, it is impossible to please God because without faith, one will not live a life pleasing to God. But it's still the life that faith produces that is pleasing to God. You read that throughout the New Testament. Faith in what pleases God? Faith in what is unseen leads to the life that pleases God. God's existence, kind of like those wimps. And the fact that he will judge both the wicked and the righteous, rewarding the righteous, such faith causes us to live righteously as Enoch did, and he walked with God. Enoch's faith caused him to walk with God, and faith in that kingdom will cause us to walk with Christ in his ways and under his command. Amen? Amen. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, this is verse 7, In holy fear built an ark to save his family. Noah acted on what was unseen. He had no scientific evidence that a flood was coming. In fact, I I don't think science today could tell us if tomorrow it's going to rain, much less flood. At least not very accurately. The the odds get pretty, pretty far apart there of it coming to pass. But he built an ark. He acted on what he believed. He had an imagined flood that God had spoken to him about that created the imagination and then he acted as if that is true because faith was his confidence and he builds an ark imagine what the neighbors were saying can you get that out of the yard like it's disgusting HOA rules would have been just horrible by faith Abraham verse 8 when called to go to a place he would later receive his inheritance obeyed and went 
even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Abraham acted on the promise of a city to come, symbolized in the promised land, even though he, but, but he even lived there in the promised land. He wasn't building a, a, a city. No, he was living in a tent. Why? Because he knew the city was to come. We have something Abraham didn't. In Jesus, the city, that city to come has already begun. We have a constitution, the Sermon on the Mount, for living in that city. We have a king and we have a people. Abraham did not have any of that at the time. We see all this explicitly spelled out in Hebrews chapter 6, the text I used last week in that 13-minute sermon. You didn't think I was just going to leave that sitting there on 13 minutes, right? I mean, not a chance. So we're going to look back at that briefly this morning. Verse 10, Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So, if our hope, according to verse 11, is to be fully realized, we must show diligence. Diligence in what? Works, according to verse 10, of faith and love, helping God's people. Then in verse 12, we read that this diligent life of works of love shown to God by helping His people is referred to as faith and patience. That is how we will inherit the promise. Or to put it as verse 11 does, how our hope will be fully realized. You you want to inherit the promise of the kingdom coming. We live by faith and patience. We diligently live doing works of, of love, good deeds of love to God's people. Wendell Berry asked the question, how can we have something better if we do not imagine it? How can we imagine it if we do not hope for it? And how can we hope for it if we do not attempt to realize it? Faith is what brings about the attempts to realize it. And to be honest with you, some of our attempts will fail miserably. They won't result in what we hoped for. Probably have some repenting to do when that happens. It's just the the nature of it. We get up, we keep going. Requires diligence, faith, and patience. In another place, Barry writes this, he says... The possibility of change depends on the existence of people who have the power to change. The possibility of change depends on the existence of people who have the power to change. I think we call that the church. Those who have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with Him through the power of God to what? To live a new life. It's the power that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The the problem has been, in the church generally, is that we don't truly hope for the present reality of Christ's kingdom, and so we don't attempt to realize it. We're waiting for a rescue committee to come get us out of this mess, by and large, instead of actually doing something to make a difference in it. 
We don't harness the power of a sanctified imagination. In fact, some teach that we can't. That the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us. Instead of trading in the currency of the kingdom, we're left only to dig a hole and put, put it in there. And wait till he comes back. There is no speculating on the kingdom going on in that mentality. I think it's one of the most dangerous things that's ever been taught in the church. That the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to us today. Faith calls us to act, to live according to the ways of the city to come now. To live according to the ways of the city to come now. That's what faith calls us to do. And that leads to my final uh, point, which is forging a new imagination. When we began, I, I said how we live is entirely rooted in the stories we believe, how we imagine reality to be. If we're going to be a people who have the power to change, as Barry noted, we have to begin at the level of the imagination, identifying the stories we believe that are false and replacing them with stories we embrace by faith. Now, this isn't something we can learn merely mentally. Jesus helps us here to understand that. You often hear John 8, 32 quoted. Most of us could probably quote it, maybe not knowing it only by the reference, but you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We know that. Interestingly enough, though, that little verse number 32 comes right in the middle of a sentence. So you have to start in verse 31 if you want to understand what verse 32 is saying. Okay. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Net Bible, the NET Bible, you can get it online, nicely captures the sense this way. If you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You see, we can't just study our way into freedom, as if I'm going to know all the right facts, the truth, this body of facts, And then I will be free. That's not how it works. Certainly not what Jesus was talking about. We must follow Jesus' teachings. And in the following, we become disciples and we begin to know the truth. See, this is an experiential knowing which sets us free. As we put Jesus' teaching into practice, our vision of the kingdom, our imagination, is continually, constantly forged. It's being sanctified. We can't learn our way to the truth. We have to experiment and and live it and put it into practice. And, of course, that creates a feedback loop where we make adjustments and change because, well, that didn't work like we thought it would, and we keep going forward, but we begin to know the truth, and the truth will set us free. By the early 3rd century, a phrase that was repeated among church leaders was this, we do not speak great things, but we live them. We see that written by a number of authors in different time periods, you know, different uh, sections. So we know it must have been a common saying. We do not speak great things, but we live them. As Cyprian puts it, we are philosophers, not in words, but in deeds. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. You see, They did not place their hope in the Roman government. They did not place their hope in the elemental gods of this world which had previously enslaved them. They worshipped the generous God who loved them and gave himself up for them. And so they began living in the reality of his present kingdom, present by the Holy Spirit who dwelled among them. And in living it out, it created a witness which caused them to have to be able to give an answer for the hope that they had. 
And in giving that answer, they could supply the words for which their lives were the hermeneutic. Their lives were the explanation of those words. They imagined the judgment to come and lived in light of it. They imagined a new way of living and began to demonstrate it. They changed the stories they believed and changed, and, and doing so changed their lives. They changed their lives, or their changed lives rather, began to spread the story to others. We must identify the false stories that affect us most and rewrite them with truth. Our imaginations have been shaped by our culture in ways that we are not fully aware of and in ways that we are completely unaware of. Ways that we are not fully aware of, we we have an inkling, and in ways we're completely unaware of. We haven't even dawned on us that that's something we need to address. Both of those are true. These false stories are internal idol factories. Reorienting our lives to the false gods of mammon, sex, and self. We could add to that list, but that's big enough for a few minutes I have left anyway. America's favorite stories, essential cultural stories, are rags-to-riches stories. They're told in numerous ways, some serious, some uh, funny, humorous. Annie's a great example. Then there's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Trading Places, Slumdog Millionaire, which kind of internationalizes it, and of course Forrest Gump, in which dumb luck rather than hard work achieves it. That's why it's so funny. One of America's greatest uh, stories was that anyone can become president. Now it's one of our greatest fears that anyone could become president. (laughs) (laughs) The, The business... You know, book and speaking circuit is filled with these rags-to-riches stories. Three assumptions are required in order to achieve this in business. One, that the person who got rich understands how they got there. That's questionable. Two, that it is repeatable for you. And three, being rich will improve your happiness. None of those have been proven, to be sure. But they, all of these stories rest on those three assumptions. On these premises, the millions of books sell, and when they do that, it makes them richer, and it only makes them more able to keep telling the story because you're making them rich. So you keep buying their books. One of the success industry's fables is the lie that if you can just put all the big rocks in the jar first, you know, you, the anecdote starts, it was, it was probably made most famous uh, in uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, <clears throat> fine book, don't, don't worry, but, but you know, it, the, the, the Professor gets up at the front of the classroom and he, he fills a jar with some sand and then he puts some gravel in and then he's got these big rocks but he can't fit them in the jar. So he empties the jar out and this time he starts with the big rocks first and then he puts the, the gravel in that fills in the space and then he pours the sand in and it, it all fits. We've, we've heard the story. It's a fable, by the way. Um, because what it's trying to tell you that if you could just prioritize things correctly, you can fit it all in, which is a big lie. You can't do it. It's baloney. Anxiety grows as we realize we aren't keeping up. And if our lives are the jar, we need to face the fact that the jar is just too small. It just is. So figure it out. You aren't going to be able to do it all. And the older you get, the more you realize, i got less time to do it. (laughs) Crying out loud, how about luck? So you have to decide what really matters. And then there are the stories that directly impact our relationships. 
Lies about how respect works. These are evident in the husband who thinks that respect is a wife who never questions his decisions or disagrees with his opinion. Or lies about what it means to be the head, as if it's about being served rather than serving. Or lies about sexual needs. Lies about our need to be right and to protect all that, that rightness at all costs. Dare call me wrong. These are the lies that cause us to launch nuclear assaults at one another. There are also the social lies that create imagined fears, thereby controlling our lives. We imagine that our nation is being overrun with immigrants. Truth is that while the number of immigrants is significantly greater than 100 years ago, the percentage of immigrants is about the same as it was 100 years ago. But the goal of that is to get us to live fearfully rather than faithfully. Others message that immigrants are more likely to commit crimes when in reality they're about 40% less likely to commit crimes than citizens. These social stories are intended to control us by fear. You may have heard the saying that there are three kinds of lies. Lies, I'll have to say darned lies because I'm preaching, but you know, you've probably heard it. And statistics. And that's true, but that does work both ways. So if you're thinking, yeah, you're just quoting statistics and, well, I am. But then again, so were the other people. So that's an even playing field as far as that goes. The gospel teaches us to love the stranger. The true story is that we are ambassadors for another kingdom in which no one is unwelcome. Imagine living as an ambassador for that kingdom all the time. So we've got to begin to imagine that. Our imaginations have been shaped by our culture in ways that we are not fully aware of and in ways we are completely unaware of. We must intentionally shape it with the gospel story. Around here we call that gospel formation. And such formation has direct bearing on the culture we live out with the goal being a gospel culture. A gospel culture. This is what our Sunday corporate gatherings are about. It is also what your Bible study must be about. Not just more information, but about identifying false stories and replacing them with the true story. Helping to rewrite our imagination so that we can live accordingly. This is why we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, so that we might do his will in order for his kingdom, uh, that, that his kingdom is manifest, that his name would be honored in all the earth. It's why we pray prayers like we prayed earlier as a congregation at the, at the end of our singing time there that Ryan led us in. Just a couple of quick thoughts in closing. Earlier I noted that the most successful story ever told is the story of money. It controls the lives of more people than any other story. It teaches us that pieces of paper or bits of data have value. And they do so long as we believe the story and everybody else does too. The gospel is the most powerful story ever told. But until we believe it enough to live it, it remains powerless. It speaks of what is the greatest val- has the greatest value such that we would trade all our money for it. And if we do, if we truly believe it is of greatest value, it will transform our lives more than any other story. That is the story we are writing with our lives as a community, and it's one we strive to write with our lives as a community. That is how we become a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. We must harness the power of a sanctified imagination. 
We must harness the power of a sanctified imagination. To do so, we must first recognize what it is we hope for, the city to come, the new Jerusalem. And then we must embrace that hope by faith and live according to it. Forming a, uh, forging a kingdom imagination will take intentionality. The problem in the church today is not so much that we believe the wrong things. That may be true at times, to be sure. But learning the right things won't fix our problems. The problem is that we don't imagine the possibility that what we profess is true enough to transform our lives. Oh, we would say that it is. I'm just saying we don't imagine the possibility because we aren't living that way. So clearly we don't imagine the possibility that it's true enough to change our lives. If, as Wendell Berry writes, the possibility of change depends on the existence of a people who have the power to change, we've got to begin to imagine that possibility, that what we profess is true, and begin to live by it so that we become a people who have the power to change the world one small community at a time. We must pray about living out the gospel. We must think about it. We must imagine what it would look like. We must uh, imagine gospel mercy transforming the needy that we encounter. We must imagine gospel outreach blessing our neighborhood and friends. We must imagine how we can be a city on a hill, a light on a lampstand, making the light visible to the whole house. We must begin to imagine it so that we can indeed be transformed into people who do it. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, May your name be hallowed. As your kingdom comes, as we do your will on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, make it so we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.